Welcome to Positive Disintegration, a path to authenticity. Today, Chris and I are talking with Marnie Camisel about education, and in particular, self-directed education. We'll be talking about how self-directed education looks for kids, uh, particularly for those who might be neurodivergent, uh, but it also raises some questions around what education looks like for yourself. And hopefully it might challenge some ideas that some of us have about what it means to be educated. Hello, dearest listeners, and welcome back to Positive Disintegration. I'm your host, Emma Nicholson, and with me is co-host, Dr. Chris Wells. Hi, Chris. Hello, Emma. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Also great. Glad to be here. I'm excited <laughs> to have our guest today. Somebody who I am I know will resonate with our listeners. Cool. And what is it that we're going to be talking about today? We're going to be talking about self-directed education and probably neurodivergence. All right. Well, let's bring on our guest and we can ask what those things mean. So for our listeners, our guest is... Marnie Camisel. So Marnie is a 2E adult and the parent of three twice exceptional kids. She's also a doctoral student studying cognitive diversity in education at Bridges Graduate School. Welcome to the podcast, Marnie. Thank you. Glad to be here. So Marnie, I discovered that we've known each other exactly a year. That it was a year yesterday that I first received a message from you um, asking about the Positive Disintegration Study Group and how to join. And so it feels like I've known you much longer than that. It's been such a pleasure to have you in the group. And I enjoy the times when we talk, you know, on Zoom, just us. But I know that you're an avid podcast listener. And so you bring a lot of interesting perspectives that I hadn't heard of. You know, you have introduced me to a lot of interesting podcasts and people. And so I'm just so happy to have you here today to talk about self-directed education, which I know is a passion of yours. Chris, yeah, it's been, it's hard to believe it's only been a year. It's been a very <laughs> eventful year, but it's been really a pleasure being in the PD study group and chatting with you. I've learned a lot and have needed your support as, as I've started a doctoral program this year and sort of uh, sorting out what is normal in academia after having been out of it for a very long time. <laughs> yes. Oh, well, I'm always happy to talk about the academic world. As you know, because you listen to the podcast, the first question I'm going to ask you is, how did you discover Dabrowski's theory? Yeah, so like many of your guests, I first learned about Dabrowski from reading the book Living with Intensity. And I instantly connected with the descriptions of overexcitabilities. And then later I reached out to you and joined the Positive Disintegration Study Group which has really been a breath of fresh air as I've traveled deeper into what some people in our field called gifted land. So, you know, looking at these things from a Dabrowskian lens is something that I treasure because sometimes I want to rail against some of what I find in gifted education. And I always appreciate that I can go to you and ask for like, who should I read to help me have, you know, an alternative perspective that I can hang on to. Because I was going to say, like, I remember you when we were first talking, 
you had like a bit of a resistance around overexcitability just because like, was I going to talk about it in the same way that it has been talked about where it's like a gifted characteristic, it's not connected with the kinds of neurodivergence. It's been interesting over this past year, especially to me, to connect with people who are neurodivergent, who get it from that perspective and who are like, yes, overexcitabilities um, are a part of that experience. And it's more than a characteristic of giftedness. And yeah. so I've appreciated you from that angle too. Oh, thanks. Well, I am constantly referring to your work because uh, I do hear a lot of pushback on overexcitabilities. A lot of people who feel like they have really harmed children um, in terms of, and I, I mean, I think it's true. I think it's a valid criticism that you have talked about as well, that children are often, parents like the idea of overexcitabilities and then they want to stop there. You know, they want to say they're gifted and they have these overexcitabilities and they don't really want to look at neurodivergence and they don't ever get to the point where you can understand that you can understand yourself as neurodivergent in a healthy way. Yes. And so that's the next question that I wanted to ask you about is kind of if you feel comfortable, we would love it if you could share some of your own personal journey of recognizing yourself as neurodivergent in adulthood and how that's looked and kind of connect it with the overexcitabilities in the theory, if you'd like. Sure. I mean, like many other parents, I kind of came to explore neurodivergence through looking at my own children's experiences and behaviors, realizing that many of the things that they experienced, not all of them, um, but many of them resonated with me when I was a child. It's different because my kids have never been to school. I went to a public school. And so sometimes um, children who, I, I think of them as children in the wild, they look different. They don't have the same kind of constraints that children in public schools do. And so neurodivergence can be a little bit trickier. And it also, there's an entire factor around deciding, is this something that we need as, as a family who has rejected conventional schooling, um, are, are labels helpful? And so there was a period when I was really exploring, I really wanted to get to the bottom of it, what does it mean? But at the same time, I also felt pretty quickly when I started researching that this made sense of a lot of my own experiences from earlier in my life. Um, and so, it was a yeah, it was a really powerful journey, especially as I found places where people had healthy neurodivergent identity, which is not all of them. Um, but when I did find those pockets of places where people were able to own their neurodivergence and feel that it was a positive um, aspect of their lives, that's what resonated for me. And I know that's not true for everyone. It's just what I needed for me because that is more how I have experienced neurodivergence. You've had pushback around being neurodivergent because I know that you have at school. <laughs> and so like, do you mind if I ask that question? Because yeah, it's totally fine. Yeah. Um, I, I have had pushback and I think especially from people who really spend time with people who do experience neurodivergence in a more difficult way. And I think it comes from, the people that I have had these conversations with, I think it's 
well-intentioned. You know, I really think that they are coming from a place of the people that I, that they know that are neurodivergent, the kids that they know um, really have struggled. And I don't necessarily seem to struggle in those ways. It's, it's complicated, right? I mean, everything, I think everyone's experiences are different. And for me, there's a lot of experiences in my life that never made sense um, until I really got deep into neurodivergence and it explained things. So, for example, when I was a child, pretty young, I had a history of passing out at different times. And it was pretty much when I would see my own blood. So I was on the playground once and I twisted in a swing and I caught my thumb and I got like a tiny blood blister. And I looked at the blood blister, stood up, they blew the whistle, so we had to go get in the line. So I got in the line, but I started to feel faint. And by the time we got to the line, I just passed out flat onto the blacktop. And this happened at other times in my childhood when I would see blood. And so my mother took me to get like, you know, brain scans and like all of these things, like what is going on? Is this like epilepsy? Is there something like medically happening here? We could never figure it out. And I never knew until just in the last year or two when I was studying polyvagal theory and realized that it was just a hypersensitive reaction to stress, you know? And so seeing my own blood would make me get so stressed that I would essentially possum and black out. And so there's a lot of just random little things like that that are really confusing for people and that, you know, in neurodivergent spaces in the right ones, people explore all sorts of things that are that are interesting and relevant. Um, and so being on a journey with these things, that's part of why it's not just a label, like it's really just a journey of understanding, I think. I like that. Yeah. Well, and I just think that we're up against a lot of stereotypes. When you challenge those perspectives, they they tend to double down on their stereotypes, unfortunately. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think it sometimes is a generational thing. I think the way that we're discussing and understanding these things is really changing. And I think it's complicated, too. I mean, I don't think there's actually a consensus around what a lot of these terms actually mean. You know, our way of diagnosing them in the DSM is really just based on outwardly observed behaviors. And there's that's not a way to diagnose anything, right? Like, we know that behaviors can mean all sorts of different things. Yeah, that's a real issue. Money, you're just saying that, like, it's taken time for people to sort of come to grips with neurodivergence and, you know, what does it even mean? And I'm thinking about something that you said a while back, and that was that people get to overexcitabilities, but then they don't want to look at neurodivergence because maybe there's sort of some negative stigma around it. And the weird thing to me about this, and you probably both have comments along this line, is I've just finished reading through Dabrowski's book, Psychoneurosis is Not an Illness. And when I read that and his descriptions of it, he actually seemed to be really 
neurodivergence affirming insofar as saying, yes, look, okay, there are issues that come from this different state of being, but so he clearly saw the, the positives of it. And the overarching message through the entire book is this is not a bad thing. Um, in fact, it's a good thing for growth. And yes, it has challenges. So the whole message of the book to me was that whole, this is not good or bad. It has pros and cons. It is just different. And it was very sort of accepting. And so I'm like puzzled now by how anyone read his work and then got frightened by the concept of being neurodivergent, if you get my drift. Like it, maybe he was too far ahead of his time in talking about this sort of stuff, but it, it's amazing to think that it's taken us so long to sort of catch up with the ideas that he was like publishing back in the 70s. I mean, I don't think most people have read Dabrowski even within the gifted community. I think most of them have just read descriptions of overexcitabilities and then used them for their own purposes you know, without really exploring like the depth of Dabrowski's work, which I'm so grateful that Chris is, you know, sharing so much of that stuff with us because it is so cool when you read someone who it was from a long time ago and yet feels so relevant. I was reading Michel Foucault earlier this month and that was another one that I was like, ah, oh, this is just so good. You know, some of these people, they write things that are still so relevant today. Well, I'm glad that you brought up psychoneurosis and not an illness too, Emma, because it's so true that, I mean, Dabrowski really was a, a trailblazer. You know, when I read that book, I noticed another aspect of it that, you know, we haven't had a chance to really touch on too much, but that he talks about, there's case studies in that book where, oh, they're not full case studies, but, you know, there's cases in that book where he talks about trauma. And like this stuff has really gone unexplored in modern times. It's one of my favorite things about the study group is that we examine these texts like from our modern perspective and it's, it's so much fun and it really is affirming and validating to see that, um, that he really got it. And that's, and I think that that's why we're still talking about the theory now um, because it's so relevant that it just, it, it won't die even though people kind of want it to because it just remains so like crucial to under our understanding of how to see this from a different lens that's outside of the, the mainstream. Another thing that I think is really cool about it, Chris, that I think I've come to through conversations with you is that when you read someone from so long ago who's describing these experiences, it gives you a framework to say, okay, people used to understand, or Dabrowski used to understand these as overexcitabilities. And now we're calling them ADHD and autism and OCD and like whatever giftedness. Um, but it helps you to break out of this set mindset of like, this is the thing and to open up a little bit to the possibility of like, well, this is how we're understanding these right now in 2023, but who knows what it's going to look like in five years because it's changed a lot in the last 10 years, you know? And so I think that's been really liberating for me personally, as I have explored this. I mean, I resonate myself with a lot of autistic experiences and a lot of ADHD experiences. And I also completely reject the deficit model. Like I don't see myself as disordered in any way. And so that was really confusing to me as I was exploring neurodivergence to try to figure out like, well, I resonate with a lot of these, but I don't see it as a problem for me. 
I understand how some people have different experiences. And so it was really confusing me to figure out like, well, would these labels apply to me in that case? You know, or as some people have said, am I like part of the broad autistic phenotype, you know, or something like that? Or like uh, Ned Hollowell talks about, you know, vast, he's coined a new term. Have you seen that one? Like variable attention stimulus trait. So like, although he thinks that that may be if you are have ADHD like but you it's like technology induced. You don't actually have ADHD. So there's like all of these weird ways that people talk about these things like, well, if you're not actually disordered and impaired, we think you can do pretty well in the world, then you don't get this label. And that was really confusing for a long time until I kind of came to the point of being like, I think that people should get to decide for themselves which communities and what words they, you know, associate with, which ones make sense for themselves. And so I kind of came through all of this to kind of end up as like, I think I just like neurodivergent or 2E, you know, those I feel very confident <laughs> that I am solidly neurodivergent. And in terms of, you know, the other things, sometimes it depends on the space, I think, like it can, and I think that some people, I think I would have experienced that as a cop out a year ago a little bit of being like, ah, like you can't even claim it, you know, and but I am like, well, that's where I am right now. Like, that's what feels right to me right now is just to claim being neurodivergent. And I say the same to my kids, you know, when I'm exploring all of these things with them, I tell them, like, you get to decide, you get to decide now, you get to decide later, you can try this on and see if it fits. And if it fits now, great. And if you decide later, it doesn't fit, you can put it down, no one gets to put this on you. This is your choice. And these are just words to describe experiences. I love that. I think that that would be a great thing to move toward. But it's hard because if your kid is in school, then you often need the label because if you want accommodations, then you have to have a diagnosis from the DSM. And so one of the blessings of being a homeschool family is that you can do that and you can accommodate your children's education and make it individual for all the, all three of them. Yeah, it's so true. And I think about that a lot because I do work with families, mostly families that are outside of school because that's kind of my area. But um, sometimes I talk to families that are in school and I think it's just, it's a really unfortunate place to be, especially because not only do you need the labels, but then it's really, since the kids spend so much time at school, it's really the school culture that defines those for them as well, um, most of the time. So that if you are giving them the label of ADHD and it's a school who really is supportive of ADHDers, then that might feel one way. But if it's a school or, or even it comes down, not just the school, but also the teacher like and the kids in the classroom, you know, there's so many moving parts within that system of what kind of interactions that child will have around neurodivergence. But yeah, it's really complicated. And I guess you would just have to really try to give them a solid foundation at home of being a really neurodiversity affirming, you know, um, family. And it also, I think, depends on the child a lot. Because some kids or teens are able to really do their own reading, do their own discussions and sort of you know, feel really strong and like, well, this is me and I don't really care what you say. And other kids, that's going to be harder. 
So to segue into self-directed education, if you don't mind, I'm just going to take a moment to say it's funny to me in retrospect how in the course of like a two-week period, I went from, okay, we're going to homeschool. Um, let me look at homeschool curricula, you know, and I'm trying to decide what we're going to do. And then being like, well, or maybe we could do like online school and then being like, no, we're going to be unschoolers and kind of diving into Peter Gray and other unschooling books at the time and, you know, reading about strewing and just deciding that we were going to let him guide his education because it became clear by the moment we had taken away so much of his autonomy to deciding that like we wanted to build him up and his autonomy and let him feel like he was guiding his own destiny, I guess is one way to say it, you know, compared to us constantly coercing, uh, you know, trying to get him like to bend to our will. It was a, it was a huge shift that took a long time to actually put into practice. So from all of that, talk with us about what self-directed education is, what it looks like and what it's meant for you as a yeah. as a parent and a, a professional sure well i think you hit on a lot of good things just there talking about your experience with your son that really self-directed education at its heart is about trusting children and also all humans because we all become self-directed learners at some point you know at some point we're not in school anymore and then for many of us who went through a conventional school system, then we have to suddenly figure out like, well, what am I interested in when someone's not telling me what's next? And so at the heart of self-directed education is really trust. And it is a movement around children's rights and youth liberation. And there's a variety of different ways to do it. Um, for me, it started at a very young age probably when I was, you know, a, I, I mean, by the time I was in kindergarten, I would say, I had a strong sense that I thought that children should have more freedom, that I certainly wanted more freedom than I had. And so my first day of kindergarten, I tried to escape. <laughs> and I think that that feeling continued for most of my, you know, K-12 education or K-10 education, because I did end up leaving um, after 10th grade and going straight to college. And that really felt like the turning point for me in terms of it finally felt like this is the thing I'm choosing now. And so much of the way that children are educated, there isn't much choice in what they can do. You just, that's like you tried to escape from kindergarten. I, that's so relatable. It really is. I mean, I remember like especially elementary school feeling kind of torturous first two weeks I spent trying to escape until I figured out there was too many teachers patrolling the playground I was never going to make it happen and at any rate when I got home what was I going to say to my mom <laughs> yeah yeah I and you know something that you've talked about on the podcast before was then escaping into imagination so I think once I realized I wouldn't be able to physically escape that's when I decided all right well then I can bring books because I was reading chapter books. So, you know, I can bring books and 
I also certainly tested the rules. So in kindergarten, I, I mean, I don't even know if I knew it was a rule, but I was like, well, this is boring. How about if I do your worksheet and then we could go play, <laughs> you know, for my friends. And then, you know, I'm sure was told that that wasn't acceptable. But later it was much more about the imaginational escape. I was like, well, you can hold my body here, but you can't hold my mind. And so but go off all sorts of imaginary places better than there. But I do think, I think that's part of just having gone through that experience. I think that was, I think that was a big part of why I knew that I wasn't going to send my children to school. And I also, I mean, I've been interested in educational theory for a very long time too. I started reading John Holt and A.S. Neal by the time I was a young teenager. And so I was already immersing myself in some of these educational, alternative educational theories, you know, as a teenager. And then I read Grace Llewellyn's Teenage Liberation Handbook, which is a classic, which encourages teenagers to leave school and take control of their lives and do other things. And that really resonated in a huge way as well. Um, well, like one thing that was on my mind that just it seems related is I like I have a couple of friends right now who have children who are like turning five they're gonna start kindergarten next year and honestly like in my gut I want to like warn them don't do it like keep them home bear them and I see like the enthusiasm of like oh yeah you know they're gonna start kindergarten and I'm like just cringing and like oh danger because these people like these are friends. I mean, they're gifted. Their children are prob almost certainly gifted too. Like, I just, yeah. I just want to warn them to run the other way. <laughs> yeah, maybe share some Peter Gray. That seems to be a pretty good gateway. Especially because now that I have children who have never been to school, and as they have gotten older, I see the difference um, in I think of them as the wild children, not just mine, but also all the other wild children that we know and spend time with. And the authenticity that they are able to bring to their experiences um, is really beautiful. And they also are being validated in their experiences in a way that when you're in a, in a conventional schooling experience, it's very top down. And it's a very power over instead of power with kind of experience. And so when that is your daily reality, you get used to other people being in control of you, telling you what to do, telling you what's right, telling you what's next. And even though they will do lip service to critical thinking, that's nothing like the experience of actually being a free child who is fully able to be in the world, to experience the world, and to follow your passions and your interests. As a parent, it's not easy. You know, people think that unschooling is an easy path. It's actually extremely difficult. <laughs> it is a huge amount of trust. It would be much easier, and we did homeschool for many years. It was very, like, child-led, eclectic. You know, it was also beautiful, and I love that kind of homeschooling, and it felt very nurturing. But it was certainly easier for me than unschooling because when you're unschooling, when you're really embracing self-directed education, 
you have to trust that your children, that their path is unfolding for them exactly as it should be. And you do get like little markers. I'm sure you've experienced this, Chris, where you're like, oh, I never would have thought that, you know, that thing that you were doing was actually valuable. And here it is. Like, I see now how it's valuable. And so you get those moments when from leaning in, you see amazing things happening, but it's not always in the moment that it's clear. Totally. Oh my gosh. I think that like now just in the age we live in, it's hard to trust if your kid loves to play video games a lot, you know? I mean, that's something that we dealt with with Jack and yet like, there are always like moments of surprise where I'm like, oh, wow, do you know about this? Like, because it's not only the video games or it's not only just like watching videos about video games. Like they're, they're also engaging in learning outside of that. So like, it really is a huge amount of trust. I have to ask a question on behalf of the audience and for you know people like me who don't know any better. You've talked about homeschooling and unschooling. What is the difference between the two? So for people who aren't familiar with either of these concepts, and obviously both of you are, can you explain to us what each of them are and what's the difference between them? Yeah, so homeschooling is more parent directed. And so, you know, I said, using lots of jargon here, but I we did child centered eclectic homeschooling. So, you know, it was very much centered around my children's interests, and um, the things that they were, that they asked to do, but it also had a lot of room for my, the things that I value. So, and we also did a fair amount of, I wouldn't say standard curriculum, but it was, we, we did math, you know, we did, and we, we would find like really, and I, I actually am a very academic person myself. And so a lot of it was coming from just the excitement of like, I wanted to share math with them because I love math and, you know, science, you know, writing, like all of those sorts of things. It, when you're homeschooling, you tend to use a variety of materials to do things that look similar to what children do in school, usually in more fun ways. And it's more, much more flexible. Um, when you look at unschooling, that's a form of self-directed education. And so that is really placing the, um, the impetus or maybe impetus isn't the right word. Scratch that. Um, when you move into unschooling, then the, the learning is really coming from the learner. And so the self-directed means that the child is choosing what they want to do and that the parent's role is really to support that without providing a lot of outside direction. And so there's still room to make suggestions, but it seems that once kids really realize that they have freedom, then they really will um, take it. And then you have to be, you have to decide to what extent are you comfortable? How far can you go? Basically, you know, are you willing to have them not do any math or not do any writing for long periods of time? And what do you think that's going to mean for their future? And so then it comes down to a, a de-schooling 
period. And de-schooling is kind of the process of examining all of your closely held beliefs around what it means to be educated and seeing if they actually make sense given our current world, you know? And so an example is, so I don't know if you had to do this. In the United States, we all have to memorize all of the states and capitals, right? Like that's a standard thing. And in many schools, they still do that today. And that's exactly the kind of task that it's like, why are you doing this? <laughs> you know, we all have computers in our pockets at all times. You know, if Lexington is the capital of Kentucky and I've never been to Kentucky, does that have any value to me? You know, or is it when I go to Kentucky and I go to Lexington, maybe now that has meaning for me. Um, so there's a lot of like rethinking what actually are the parameters of what it means to be well-educated. And so coming back to what Chris said about video games, I feel really grateful that I have three children and two of them, my boys, both love video games and spend a lot of time on them since we have become unschoolers. And my daughter is much more into art and writing and, you know, is more interested in just different things. And so I can really see that it's not just that, like, I'm a parent who's letting them play video games and that's all they do. It lets me instead invite, like, I think that the way their brains work, they are going to do something with technology in their futures. And so I, I think we still, as parents, there's a lot of fear around video games in particular when it let, and screens in general. I mean, even, so my daughter, she might not be playing as much Minecraft, she might be doing digital art and she's on a screen. Is that now different that she's on a screen than if she's using charcoal? I don't know, you know, I, I don't think so. And so I've really tried to apply that kind of mindset to my boys when they are spending a lot of time playing video games because we are not going to be able to anticipate the jobs that our children have in the future. You know, right now AI is all over the news. People are going crazy about chat GBT. And, you know, that was that didn't exist five years ago. And people are theorizing it's going to completely revolutionize the job market and that a lot of the jobs that people are doing today aren't going to exist at all in 20 years. And so when I think about that, it helps me to have a different lens on my children spending a lot of time on devices and on computers because I can't possibly imagine how the training that they will need for the jobs that they are going to do. Now, I do try to also think of them like plants. So I try to make sure that they are getting enough sunlight, <laughs> that they are getting their proper nutrition, um, that they are spending time with friends. And so in our family, from having done a lot of work around having a positive tech perspective, it's not about removing the technology, it's about trying to sprinkle in lots of other things that might get them excited about and get them moving. I really want to go back to what you said about your children's authenticity from this experience they've had of only being educated at home and in a way that affords them a lot of freedom compared to some homeschool families. Um, because there's a huge range of what it means to unschool or homeschool, even within these terms, you know? I mean, there are some families who call themselves unschoolers, but they're really not. They're still imposing, uh, you know, some curriculum on their kids. 
but there's this manuscript that I mentioned right before we started recording. Um, it's an unpublished manuscript from Dabrowski called Authentic Education. And it's really interesting. And I wish now, like, I wish that I had sent you like this manuscript to read before we recorded. But, you know, he ties authenticity to the the development or the discovery of a hierarchy of values, you know, kind of at the beginning of it. And it's interesting to me because I think that like what we're doing when we allow our children to have this alternative education is that we're giving them the opportunity in childhood to be a, on that path of discovering their values. And we're modeling for them our values, which are that we respect them and we value them as people in a way that is different from other families. And it's not to say that other parents don't, obviously. I mean, of course, other parents also respect and value their children. But um, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a very different way of living. I wanted to ask you, you know, to follow up a little bit more about what you mean when you say you see your children's authenticity. So just let us like, give us a window into what you mean by that. When I talk to families who are considering homeschooling or unschooling, they'll say to me like, well, we're really struggling with, you know, when we have homework and I wonder if it'll be easier if they come home. And I usually say, well, no, I don't think it will be because that is them authentically like showing up. And that's what people do in the comfort of their own home is they will show you their true selves. And so you probably are going to have a lot of those moments when you're like, ah, oh, like, couldn't this just be easier? I mean, in those cases, I also say sometimes it is easier if you're homeschooling, because instead of trying to do homework at 630 at night, you can be like, it's 10 a.m. Can you eat a brownie and do a page of math? And then we could go to the park. Some, for some kids, that works. And for other kids, it's still something that is going to be a challenge at different times in their lives. But when it comes to kids who have never been to school or who have only been to programs that they have chosen, and I should say, this might be a good time to say that going to school is also could be compatible with unschooling. I mean, with self-directed learning, you know, that it would just be that that was that child's choice and that they were so grounded in their own autonomy that they would know that they could leave. And so then, like, there's nothing wrong with making those choices. It's just about knowing that it is a choice. And that just like for me as a doctoral student or anyone else as an adult, when we opt into things or a job or whatever it is, that we have hopefully real choices that we can say, I'm doing this for this reason. And if it doesn't work for me, if I'm mistreated, I can leave. And children often don't have that same that same um, privilege to be able to say, I'm being mistreated in this situation, I'm going to leave. And so it is hard because often, as I said, kids will bring their authentic selves and they are they don't have, you know, all of their emotional regulation developed. They don't have their full thinking brains, their prefrontal cortex is not developed until they're in their 20s. And so they will bring a lot of big emotional energy and that can be really hard to deal with as a parent. So there's that level of authenticity where you're like, oh wow, like this doesn't seem like that should, this should be that hard. And it is that hard, whether it's like 
getting shoes on to go to the thing that you asked to go to and you know there's a meltdown or you know whatever it is that sometimes um like if we were just in a public place and there were other people maybe some kids not all kids then hold it together in a different way than they do if it's just your family there's that level of authenticity and for me i'm always reminding myself that it's hard but it's also part of hopefully the process of them really knowing themselves deeply and being really well grounded in knowing that they can say no you know and that we don't that is hard as a parent too because we want them to just go along with our ideas and you know our grown-up agendas of like I wanted to do this thing or I need to do this thing. We need to go to the grocery store and you're five years old and I can't leave you home. And they may say no. And so that can be a challenge as well when they're so grounded in their authenticity that they're like, it's not a good day for me to put pants on. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, well, you know, sometimes depending on the child, then you make a choice based on all of the family situations, you know, do you really have to go to the grocery store or, you know, can you say like, all right, maybe I can go later, depending on your personal, you know, situation. Yeah, I think I, I do. I mean, I definitely think that kids who are homeschooled and unschooled still have plenty of bumps as they are growing up and starting to try to better understand themselves. Like they go through adolescence and it's awkward, but they also have so much more freedom to try to find spaces that fit them and not just to try to fit themselves into the mold of whatever local school that they are in. It just seems like a huge gift to me. So, Money, you just talked about, you know, going to the grocery store and whether or not that fits in with what you need to do. Are there ways or, you know, what are some tips you have or whatever for parents who may be don't have the option of taking their kids out of school or maybe their kids don't want to come out of school because they've got friends there or you know maybe they both work they don't have the time for that are there ways that you can foster that sort of authenticity you know particularly for you know gifted or neurodivergent kids at home without necessarily taking them out of school so if you can't afford to do that are there ways that you could maybe give them a little bit of that space when they're not at school? Right. Well, I mean, there are self-directed learning centers in many places. So depending on where you live, that could be a possibility. Um, I don't think that sometimes people talk about like homeschooling after school, and I don't really the way that I think about homeschooling and self-directed education, it's not something you could do after school because it's a lifestyle. Like it, it is pretty all encompassing and it's such a philosophical shift. So the de-schooling process I described like is such a huge part of it to really question all of your long held beliefs and values around education. And so that would be hard to do while still keeping your children in a conventional schooling environment. Although I suppose you could still do the work and then you could really have the conversations with your child around like, this is an artificial system that you're in. You know, we can't do something else right now, but you know, maybe I tell your teachers like, we're not doing homework. You know, maybe you can find some of those pockets of places to be able to say like, 
this is our family doesn't agree with this. We're not we're not going to do homework like, you know, they, the time in school is enough. That might be one way. Um, but it's a lot to place on a child to put them in a system like that and to expect them to hold out against the values that are being placed on them within the system. Like that's a huge weight for any of us to be in a system like that. Like if we think about like workplaces or, you know, those kinds of pressures, so that would be hard. But um, you could also look at self-directed learning centers. So that is another type of self-directed education. There's unschooling and then there's self-directed learning within a school. So um, the most, the oldest currently operating self-directed learning school is Summerhill in the UK, which is a democratic school. And in um, self-directed learning schools and centers, children like in unschooling are free to decide how they use their time. And there are a variety of opportunities available, but it's really up to the children to decide what they do with it. So that's where coming back to um, the heart of self-directed education is that the responsibility is the children's. And when I say responsibility in that way, it's not like something that you're placing on them. It's more of like a positive. They get to own it. They get to own their own learning. And the role of adults is really to um, provide support and to help them with whatever it is that they want to let children know, like, I'm here for you. Like, what are you interested in? How can I help you? You know, let's let's look online. Let's find resources. Let's talk to somebody. Let's set up a Zoom. Let's go, you know, what's in our community? Maybe we can go take a tour. I know, like, I have been a member of, like, a bunch of Facebook groups for unschooling families. What resources do you know of or would you recommend... Are there any that, you know, we could put in the show notes or, and that, I mean, even includes like Facebook groups that you know of, because like, you're so much more involved in it than I am. Like I belong to a few groups, but I only kind of vaguely pay attention to them at this point. Yeah. Um, the Alliance for Self-Directed Learning is a really great organization. Um, they have regular events and they have a lot of resources on their website. So that would be a great one. Um, and they actually, I was going to tell you guys as well, that they have these six optimizing conditions of self-directed education. It's one of the resources that they have on their website. So the six things are responsibility, like I just talked about, that the children really get to own their own learning is number one. And then unlimited opportunity to play is the second one. Number three is play with the tools of the culture. And this comes back to our talk about technology, because that's where a lot of parents go when it's like unlimited freedom. They're just going to be on the computer all the time. And this is that idea that the computer is the tool of our culture. So, of course, kids want to be on computers. They see that that's what the adults are doing. That's where a lot of people are going to be making their living. So it's only natural that they're going to spend a lot of time on computers and to just get comfortable with that idea. And as I said earlier, to you consider that as like, that's part of, that's going to be part of their lives for many children. And then rather than making it a negative thing, just trying to bring in lots of other positive things. And then number four is adult allies. So that's that idea of like, it's not that we're saying like, okay, you know, go educate yourself. Here's a laptop. It's the idea of like constantly partnering with them 
and offering support. Um, access to mixed age play is number five. And we haven't talked about that one, but I think that's really important. And I see that happening a lot in self-directed learning and also in homeschooling that and unschooling that kids are spending time with people of all ages and not just getting so segregated to just like, I can only spend time with people that were born within one year of me. That makes no sense. And then number six is a stable, supportive and respectful community. So just really trying to help find who are going to be the helpers and who are going to be the people who are inspirations. So that's one of the, the things on the um, ASDE's website. So that would be a great thing to link. And then there's a Facebook group that I really like. It's for unschoolers. So if you are an unschooler, it's called Unschooling Every Family. And there's a bunch of great books. So I could give you a list of books. Um, Carrie McDonald wrote Unschooled. So that is an excellent book. Peter Gray's Free to Learn is a classic that brings up a lot of evolutionary psychology sort of ideas and talks about, I think that one's really fun and interesting because, you know, our conventional schooling system's only been in place for 200 years, which like everyone's like, oh, that feels, it's always been done that way. But 200 years is actually a really short time in the course of human evolution. And so thinking back to like, how have human children learned before that is really eye-opening, I think. I am sitting here thinking about self-directed education, like as adults too. It's something that like, I've always had a drive to educate myself, you know, and even when I was a doctoral student, I took a long break. Once I was like free from the coursework and I was working on my dissertation, I was like, ah, freedom. But that freedom led me down like the rabbit hole of gifted education literature and then discovering Dabrowski's theory. And so it like added years to my degree because I went so off track on my degree program and like just started learning about this other stuff that I was interested in. And it's, it was relevant. Like it was connected enough with my dissertation that my committee accepted it, but it really extended how long it took me to finish my PhD. I mean, significantly, but, but what was I supposed to do? Like not honor that, that drive I had to learn in, in everything that I did made my dissertation better. It helped my understanding of the topic of choice exceptionality from the parents perspective, but also, you know, from like the systemic perspective. And that's what clued me into so many of the the problems and the, I would say, like dichotomies that we face in the gifted field that is so black and white as a field. You know, you're either gifted or you're not. Here's a cutoff score that we're arbitrarily going to use to decide whether or not you're gifted. I mean, it was that way for a long time where it was like, well, gifted kids are gifted. They don't also have disabilities. Like, now we know that that's bullshit. And of course they do. But like we've had to overcome so many of these problems, you know, that come from kind of a narrow way of viewing things in education. Like education, well, I don't want to start on education bashing, but it's not a great field. That's where like having you and, you know, there are some people in my program that also a lot of them, I would say that I can have real conversations with, but it was 
kind of ironic and still is kind of ironic being in a doctoral program that is an education-based program. I mean, thankfully, it does bring in like the psychological aspects of the gifted because every time we're talking about like the talent development stuff, I'm just like, oh, this is so awful. <laughs> you know, and it brings back a lot of my own school trauma when I was, you know, a gifted child who, you know, really bought into the system. And that was a big part of also why I rejected it for my own kids is because I felt like it was so damaging having been a gifted child. And I was just a very academic child. I just loved academics. I wanted to go deep and fast in academics, you know, I mean, but the problem is even for a gifted child like I was and, you know, someone who was like, I really want to go to college, like a really good college. And I'm going to apply to college when I'm 15 and, you know, did all that stuff. And then, okay, great. So then I went to college and then I graduated when I was 19. And well, you know what, when you're 19 and all you've ever done is go to school, the world's a really scary place <laughs> at that point, because all you know is school. And so that was another thing I was pushing back on for my own children was just not having their experience be so narrow about achievement in a schoolish sense, even if that was, and so far my children have not been drawn to, you know, moving quickly through schoolish achievement. I mean, they certainly have shown up as gifted and at times, actually many times I am blown away by their insights and the depth of their observations, but I don't see, they don't have any concept of like, for me, it was like, well, I should make sure to get to algebra by this certain grade, because then like, I want to get to calculus by this age. And like, they don't have any of that. It's much more fluid. I'm like, well, this is interesting to me right now. And then that leads to something else. But it's okay for me to take a break, you know, and do this other thing that I'm interested in. There's no like competition in their world. And what that means is that they are also much more um, empathetic to a wide variety of people and experiences because they are not being directly judged against them. There's no comparisons in those way. And so where I was angry a lot as a child, I don't see that same kind of burning anger in them. Not that they don't get angry and they have big emotions, but I just don't feel that it is consuming them the way that it sometimes felt like it was consuming me that I was like, within this system that was a mismatch and that I wanted to go faster and I wanted to learn as quickly as I could, but I was being held back. And, you know, so even for those academically inclined gifted kids, I just see it as being a really harmful, a really harmful system in general. And then that's not even looking at like all the gifted kids who are not super traditionally academically inclined, who are really passionate about music or, Legos or fixing cars or whatever those are, you know, that we were, at least I was very um, looked down on like vocational education and, you know, would never have been friends with someone who was really into fixing cars. I don't think my kids have any sort of sense of like hierarchy of subjects in that way. And so if they met a friend as a teenager who was really into fixing cars, they would just be like, that's cool. They're really into fixing cars. <laughs> It wouldn't be like, well, they haven't done geometry yet. So I don't know if I can talk to them. Right. Oh my gosh. Yes. That's so interesting. 
Because I too was like that in high school to some degree where I had like this idea of when things had to be done, but all of those structures kind of flies in the face of everything that Nebraska was saying. And then we're just starting to get a grip on now to circle back to something we talked about right at the beginning. We're just starting to see how his concepts of stuff actually apply to real life and are pushing back and challenging at systems that we've got in place. He talked about you know self-education and the importance of it. And Chris, you were alluding to as an adult, you know, this is the type of education that we want to feed in order to attain our authenticity. You know, just as important for kids as it is for adults to follow our, our own path and our own interests and what works for us. You know, and recognizing that particularly for gifted and neurodivergent people, that's going to look different. And he was always like, I've, I've read quotes, I'm sure, of where he said something along the lines of when you're assessing an individual, particularly a different individual, you shouldn't be looking at what is normal quote unquote, you should be looking at what is normal for them. And so all these thoughts around treating neurodivergence and giftedness differently and accommodating for that and challenging all our ideas on what it means to learn, what it means to be educated, it, it's pushing back at those societal values and really sticking to what that underlying message for me, the whole theory of positive disintegration is, is that you have to find your own path. You have to be authentic. You have to do what works for you. And you have to put in the hard work. You know, Chris, we've talked about the whole hard one thing. You have to put in that hard work. Figure out what works for you. Do what's right for you and be authentic. That's right. You're here. Yeah, I love that. And since I am studying twice exceptional children, it definitely makes me think about them and their paths as well. For many of these kids, you know, they are just that much more out of sync. I mean, I think that the way that public schools are designed don't really, they weren't designed for any child. They were designed, you know, to create factory workers and for the convenience of adults at this point. You know, if we, if we really face up to it, school is largely about childcare. You know, and yep. if we could just like let that out of the bag and just be honest about that, we might be able to have better conversations about how to actually meet children's needs. And so if we have kids who are, you know, they have such intense asynchronous development or that they're just not going to do that, then, you know, school is that much more painful for them. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Marnie. This was a really interesting conversation and it's so different than the other topics that we've tackled so far on the podcast, which is you know, why I thought it would be a great one to do with you. It was really fun. I had a good time. Thanks to you both. Cool. Thanks, Marnie. And thanks, Chris. It's always a pleasure to have you here too. It is always a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners. We always appreciate you joining us. This podcast is brought to you by the Dabrowski Centre. If you like what you've heard, please consider leaving a donation through the link in the show notes. If you're listening to us on Apple or Spotify, consider leaving us a review or a rating. You can get in contact with us at positivedisintegration.pod at gmail.com and you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook.